do it. Yo, it's your boy Leo Flowers. Another episode of Before You Kill Yourself. I'm joined today. This is going to be an interesting episode because, uh, you know, we've had therapists, we've had um, uh, psychologists, and uh, today we got Michael Graham, one of my best friends from college. Yeah, yeah. Uh, on today, and uh, the reason why we have Michael Graham on, uh, and we're going to talk about your last name because you want to change your last name. Yeah, we got to. It's got to go. <laughs> you got to go. It's got to go. Uh, but uh, I'm excited to have him on because, uh, you know, I so many people are overwhelmed with life, and I don't know anybody who has figured out how to hack life more than Michael Graham. Um, he uh, was. He has dyslexia. And uh, so it's forced him to be uh, extremely resourceful, really smart guy. He's built his own business, uh, and he's had some personal things that has happened to him at a very young age that we're going to get into. And we grew up similarly uh, in terms of our family and, uh, and structure and location and things like that. Uh, so welcome uh, to the episode, Michael Graham. Thank you for having me. Michael, why are we changing the last name? First off, let's start with. <laughs> See, it's already it's already going to go south. I'm going to tell you guys right now, it's going to be no episode that you've heard before. <laughs> let's just start with. I don't know that I have dyslexia. I believe that I have dyslexia. And so, where did that come from? In high school, I went to private schools up until high school, and then I went to a public high school, and my test scores and my grades were really high at the public high school, even though they were average at a pub at the um, private school. So, but I, what I would notice is when I was taking tests or reading books that it, in the class that everyone would finish before me. And I couldn't figure out why my grades are better than everyone else's, but I'm the last person to finish a test, the last person to finish. So I thought maybe I have dyslexia, because when I was in first grade, I wrote D's and B's backwards, like all kids do, right? Maybe third grade. So I go to the counselor and I say, hey, can I have a test for dyslexia? And she says, yeah, and they, she sends someone a few weeks later to come and give me a test. And she sits me down, she looks at my English transcripts, and she says, I'm not gonna give you a test for dyslexia because you have A's in English. So, and that was the end of it. It was just like, nope, not gonna waste my time, I'm out of here. So I'm like, oh, well, even though I believed it, there was nothing I could do at that, you know, being 16, 17 years old. So we're going to flash forward to college. And in college, I was taking a, a class about learning disabilities because I was a, um, a education major. So I'm having this class about learning disabilities. And somewhere around my sophomore year, I stopped buying books because, like you said, life hacking, I knew that the books weren't helping me. So I stopped buying books and I stopped taking notes. And I used to just memorize the lectures, which I thought was quite normal. I would just repeat what the teacher was saying while they were saying it, memorize the lectures because no teacher gives you a test on something they haven't talked about, right? Right. So finally, this teacher in the learning disability class says, hey, pull me aside. I want to talk to you. She says, I notice you don't have a book and you don't take notes, but you're the only person passing my class. And initially, she thought I was cheating. And I explained to her, books aren't helping me. I just memorize the lectures. And I, don't, I can't even write it very well because it is confusing to me sometimes. 
And in the middle of my explanation, she stops me. She's like, oh, you have a learning disability. And I was like, that's what I've been saying, right? <laughs> and she's like, well, but here's the thing. Don't go get a test. Don't go get the label. You have already figured a way around this problem if yeah. you're here. There's nothing more for you to do. Like half of the issue is figuring the workaround. Mm. So she was like, now that I understand where you're coming from, I'm not worried. And she just left me alone. So I have gone through my life now believing that I'm probably dyslexic, mm -hmm. but I don't have any documentation or anything to prove that that is the case. You know what I mean? You, you know what's powerful about that? Uh, a few things, and we talked about this in previous episodes, in that um, when you know or have an awareness of a problem, right, it gives you then the opportunity to figure out how to work around it mm -hmm. versus what a lot of people try to do. They go, I have a problem. They try to get rid of the problem. Right. It's not, uh, not always about getting rid of it. Some things you can get rid of, like you right. get rid of a tumor maybe, or right. you get rid of, you know, the trash or whatever. Mm -hmm. But if you have a certain uh, personality or characteristic or uh, learning disability, then that's something that you have. And then you have to figure out how to work around it. Mm -hmm. But like you said, most of the work, is really figuring out what it is you have. What's the workaround? Right, and then what's the workaround? Mm -hmm. Because a lot of people are trying to work around the the, the wrong thing because they've diagnosed it incorrectly. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I really feel like a lot of people think they're depressed, but chances are they might be uh, bored, mm -hmm. or they might be manic, or they might they. It could be something else that maybe there is some depression, but maybe that's not the primary thing. Right, and so they're trying to work around this one thing. And there's something else. They're unfulfilled. It could be located. It could so so many things. Mm -hmm. um, and it, and, it, and so you really have to do the homework in figuring out what is really the issue. So then you can then appropriately work around it. And mm -hmm. like you said, you know it's the right one because you'll get results. Like you're getting A's, right? right? So you you're like, oh, this strategy works. But if you're incorporating something that's not working, then you, you're like. I either I've diagnosed it wrong or my workaround is wrong. But mm -hmm. you, you have to go back to the drawing board on that. Right. 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 That's what you're touching on there is is uh, in large part how I ended up in California, you know, moving here from Indiana is I was working at a uh, pharmaceutical company and I was I was severely overpaid and underworked, which is not a problem most people have. But bored out your mind. Bored to death. <laughs> Bored to death, right? And I remember I was driving home, and this is the only time I had like this like deep depression and like thoughts of like I could just die right now. I'd be happy. I'd be fine with it, right? I remember you talk about like uh, one night you were driving home yeah. and you're like, I could just turn into this tree. Or I, I was driving home. It was snowy and it was slippery, and I was I was thinking to myself, if I just slid off the road into a tree. I'd be okay with that because I didn't understand I was depressed and bored from like and unfulfilled. Until you have a job, job right? where you're just like, <sighs> and then after that, I told myself I would rather move to Los Angeles and have nothing and be around my friends yep. than live in Indiana with lots of things and no friends, like no one to 
talk to and hang out with and that sort of thing. So that is why I made my move. I just, I, I knew that that place wasn't working for me. And I wasn't, I wasn't like, my family wasn't there. My friends, were, there was nothing holding me there really, you know? Mm -hmm. So I was like, let me just get out of this place and go to where there's some sunlight. Yo, being around uh, family, friends, people that you connect with, is so huge, Yeah, right? And, it, and like you said, even though you're making all that money, um, and, and that's important too because uh, I read so much about um, a lot of students who are completing suicide, but they're like A students. Uh, they, um, are, you know, captain of the team, mm -hmm. you know, just thriving in all these different areas, um, but yet they still feel disconnected for whatever reason. Mm. And it, it really comes down to, and part of it is just, Location, who are you surrounding yourself mm -hmm, with? Mm -hmm. You know, you could be around a lot of people, but if you don't really feel like they your people, people, right? right? right. Like this is your tribe, like they right. got you. Because some people are around you because of what you do. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, mm -hmm. oh, you're the captain, you play football, I want to be around you. Right. And you can feel that, right. that, that insincerity, and versus people who want to be around you, like no matter what, like mm -hmm. you could be on the street, you could be whatever, and you want to be around those people who you're like, I know that they got me right? no matter what. Right. You know, they might they might talk trash about me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, get your life together. Mm -hmm. But you want to be around those people, even if it meant, you know, taking a pay cut and trying right. to right. Uh, rebuild it. When I moved to California, right before I moved here, I used to own this old Jeep. And before I got the Jeep, I didn't know there was this such thing as a Jeep wave. So as you're driving down the street, anyone else that has a Jeep would stick their hand out the window and wave at you. And at first I thought, these people th think they know me. But then I realized everyone who has a Jeep is waving at me. So I had this community of Jeep. And if we saw each other, we'd talk, but we started waving. So when I moved to California, I didn't have the Jeep anymore, but I joined this social club. I think you played flag football with us a couple oh, times. Oh, yeah, yeah. So the social, in Hermosa, right? In Hermosa Beach. Yeah. So the social club was just like getting people together, didn't know each other, and you would do like co-ed football or co-ed soccer or volleyball. And then that led me to connecting with people who rode motorcycles. So motorcycle people are kind of like, you know, Jeep people. They'll stop and help you on the side of the road if you're broken down. And I've done the same thing because people have done that to me. So I go, this is just kind of the etiquette. And then I built this community of strangers. And that's how I initially uh, found my way in uh, California with meeting new people. So I had to find out where there were people who did what I did so then I could build this community. And even though I don't hang with very many of those people now, 15 years later, that helped me make this transition and have this community of people to talk to and to do things with and not just being at home, being bored and depressed in a new place. Um, what, what got you into motorcycles and cars? And it's not, you know, because I know you and I know you love to work with your hands. The listeners don't know. I mean, right now we're in, we're podcasting in your, uh, it's a live work loft, right? Yes. And there's, uh, there's dust everywhere. You everywhere. can't see <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> you got to be driving your neighbors nuts with the drilling and sawing. Or I is think they get it. They get it. They're here too. They're doing it too. You know. <laughs> and uh, I gotta say, like my when I was a when I was a kid, my 
I didn't I didn't realize this until I went back to visit my dad recently. Mm-hmm. And my dad told me his dad took him everywhere he went and helped him and had his son, you know, my father help him do everything, right? Mm-hmm. So my dad said he would come home from school and my grandfather owned a uh like a car mechanic shop and a restaurant and several rental properties like that sort of thing, right? And he was basically just a hustler, right? So when my dad would get home from school, he would come to the mechanic shop to hang out with all the guys. And his, his dad would tell all the guys to stop working. And they would all like sit and drink beers and play cards and hang out. And then it was my dad's job to fix all the cars that were there. And no one would help him. He would just go over there and just fix the cars. And then later on, my dad said, well, I realized like that was my that was my internship. That was my training. Wow. He gave me problems to solve. It kept me busy and it kept me at home, like in the business and not out in the streets. And I learned a lot, you know. So when I didn't, I didn't start hanging around my dad till I was 14. Like my mom and dad didn't get along. And finally, when I got to that age where I was bigger than my mom and, you know, just driving her nuts, she was like, you're going to go, hey, you're going to go stay with your father. Right. So, you know, two hours away, I go and hang with my dad in Michigan. And my dad says to me at uh, 14 or 15, this is how I got into motorcycles. We're driving down the side of the road and he says, hey, do you want a motorcycle? And I said, no. And he was like, of course you do. All kids want motorcycles. And I was like, I don't. I don't want a motorcycle. He was like, you don't know what you want. And he buys this motorcycle. And then I watch him like drive it up and down the street, you know, doing wheelies on it, driving it you know, through the school playground. It's just like this old dirt bike. It was way too big for me. And he took me out to this field and he let me ride it all around. And in that like hour, I was hooked, right? I was hooked, like, okay, you're right. Everyone wants a motorcycle, right? But then he would give me problems to solve with cars. He'd say, oh, there's an old car you can have in the back. You know, I'm at this time, I'm like maybe 14, 16 years, somewhere in there. He was like, oh, you can have this car. He's like, but uh, the transmission is broken. It's, it's on the ground next to the garage, you know, but you know, if you put that in, it's yours. So I'm out there all day. I've never seen a transmission. I've never seen tools, right? But I'm out there all day and night trying to get this transmission in. And I finally get one out and I get one in and he's kind of peeking through the window, but not helping me, you know, finally I took a, a lamp and I took the shade off and I slid like the bare bulb in this lamp under the car because I started at 6 a.m. It's now midnight. And I'm trying to like fix this transmission still. And I get it all done. And he comes outside and he says, he comes outside and he says, see, I knew you could do it. You're such a smart kid. He was like, it wasn't even that hard, right? Knee bone connected to the thigh bone, right? And that positive reinforcement like kept me working through problems, believing that I'm a smart kid and I can figure it out, right? So as, as, a, as an adult, I said, Dad, it took me 12 hours or more to do something that would only take me two hours. And he was like, yeah, but if I had told you you were doing it wrong and it took you forever, you would have never done it again. So I told you something that would keep you motivated to you know, keep trying. You know, I have a lot of friends who have kids. And one of the things I always encourage them to do with their kids is that positive reinforcement, mm-hmm. you know, uh, 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 it's so easy to catch people when, uh, they're doing something wrong, especially your kid. They're like, yeah. don't do that. Stop right. doing that. Blah, right. blah, blah. But 
what happens is, is the kid never really builds the muscle of, of practicing mm-hmm. something, working mm-hmm. on something, failing, struggling, and figuring it out for themselves. Yeah. Even my, my clients, sometimes I'll give them an exercise to do, mm-hmm. and I won't correct them immediately. Mm-hmm. I'm always looking to see how do they adjust. Mm-hmm. How, like, I'm looking at their face. I'm looking at the nonverbals. Mm-hmm. I'm looking at, because uh, sometimes... In there, doing it not in uh, the, you know in with incorrect form. Right. They show me something mm-hmm. that I didn't realize. Mm-hmm. I go, oh, that that's another exercise mm-hmm. we could do. Mm-hmm. You know, I have one client the way she she does her rows. I, I, I like nobody rows like that. Right. But then I realize you can row like that. Mm-hmm. You know. Mm-hmm. So now I've incorporated into the exercise. Right. So it's just like with your father. It's like he just he just lets you to see. How, how you would manage it, and then you're building that muscle of, oh, if I work on something, right. it will, um, I, I can build it over time. Right. You know? So uh, there, over time, I started to kind of put all these puzzle pieces together of my dad and the dyslexia and, and my work ethic. And I read Malcolm Gladwell's book, The Outlier. And there's this chapter where he talks about like Asian kids in math or something like it's been years now I can't remember it all but it's been years and um, he talks about one of the reasons that uh, the Asian kids are good at math is not because they're smarter but because they will work harder so I think he gives them a math problem they can't solve and just times how long they'll work on it and you know determines that the more determination you have to solve problems, the more successful you are, long story short, that sort of thing. And I later read uh, a book about uh, the millionaire next door, and he talked about how most likely uh, millionaires, most millionaires in the United States, like drive a Ford F-150 and they're dyslexic, you know, and or didn't graduate from college, you know, and how the dyslexia played a part in uh, forcing them to solve problems. There was a problem they had to solve very early in life, and now when they are faced with opposition, they don't easily back down. They just roll up their sleeves and dig a little deeper, right? Because that's basically who they had to be to get over their dyslexia thing. So, you know, like I said, I think I'm dyslexic, but kind of my clues to say that maybe I am is the fact that I have been a problem solver and not easily like um, deterred from things being hard. I just go, in my mind, I always say, if I can't do something, it's because I'm not working hard enough or I didn't try hard enough. So I just keep going and going and going and then uh, eventually it'll, it'll, it'll work. And then people around me is like, oh wow, you're so smart, you figured that out. And I'm just like, I just spent three days trying to get at this. A smart guy probably would have did it in 30 minutes, you know what I mean? And, and, you know, people say that. They go, I'm a problem solver. Try to hack it. Mike hit me up through text message a few nights ago <laughs> about <laughs> so excited that he learned. And how old are you, Mike? 40? 44, maybe 40, 45. I can't maybe remember. 40. <laughs> I can't remember. I stopped, I stopped, I stopped counting. All right. Well, I'm 43. About, I, know, I know you're at least a year older yeah. than I am. And uh, Mike hit me up so excited about learning how to freestyle rap. Yeah, that was awesome. And <laughs> now, now, mind you, you know, you, you have a baby on the way. Yeah. You're about to get married. Yes. And uh, you have a thriving business that we'll get into. 
uh, and but at at the age of forty four, yeah, when most people, you know, th- nobody's thinking about learning how to freestyle rap at this age. But this is how your brain works, and because yeah. it's bothered you, yes, for so long, yes. Can you speak to it, Michael? <laughs> because because then it made me when you when you hit with that text. Because I mean, I've always freestyle rap, yeah. but I never really thought about studying it. Right. I was just like, because right. it's more, it was more natural to me. Right. But then when you broke it down, yeah. I was like, let me look at this again. Yeah. And then it actually improved my freestyle rapping. Can the, you break it down? The interesting thing to me is it didn't make me a better freestyle rapper, but it made me understand it. And I felt so much better understanding you the problem. Empowered. I felt empowered. So the, the, the short antidote is like my studio studio is so messy, but after I read uh, Marie Kondo's, uh, what's her book? Oh, yeah, The Art of Tidying Up. The Art of Tidying Up. Yep. Once I understood why it was messy and how it could be better, I felt better. I didn't need to organize. I just need to understand why I couldn't get organized, right? And it did. It changed my, that book changed my life, right? How so? so? Hold, hold, can we can we dissect that for a second? Yeah. I know I don't want to get off because your place is to me disorganized. Yes, but when I ask you for something, yeah. you know exactly where it is. Right, right. But it is still disorganized. I know where things are because I touch them all the time. But what that book did for me is before I didn't understand why it was disorganized. I had no way of fixing it. I could only be frustrated by it. Then after reading that book, I know I I felt like I understand how to be organized and I wasn't frustrated because I was I felt so helpless, right? This gave me a path to be organized and that was more important to me than being organized. You know what I mean? I I completely understand yeah. that. It's like um it's you know some people will struggle with like why something happened they yeah. just want to know why yeah it's kind of like if uh <laughs> you know you're about to get married now but you know even in dating it's like i, I don't care that you didn't call back i want to know why, why? you yeah, didn't yeah, call yeah. back why? and then once you know why you're like okay, okay i get good, it that's fine cool, right. but i just the, the the not knowing is yeah. what eats you up you and know that's how freestyle <laughs> rapping has eluded me my whole life you know i'm like all these like I have the background to be good at freestyle rapping, you know, like, you know, I've got a cousin in prison for selling drugs, you know, a little brother that died when I was uh, five years old. Like, I've got the pain. I should be, I should be a good freestyle rapper. I should be able to rap, but I couldn't, I can't rap. So I decided to say, well, just like anything I've been up against, there is, there's a solution. There's a, there's a way to figure out this puzzle. And I just need to, you know, YouTube. I YouTubed it. I was like, how to freestyle rap? And I came across this guy that explained, you know, what a bar is. You know, one, two, three, four, that's a bar. And then how a verse is 16 bars typically. And basically the subject matter can change every four bars. So just that explanation of how rapping works he warns that this might ruin rap music for some people, but for me, it, 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 it like it was like a flower blooming. You know, it, it opened it up to me in a way that I could never see it before. And now that I understand 
how it works. When I listen to music, I'm like, one, two, three, four, change topic, right? Change something. I was just like, it's it, it just blew my mind. I, could, I couldn't wait to uh, text you and talk about it because I know that you freestyle, but I mean, I don't know if I'm better at freestyle, but I certainly understand how it goes now. It, it, it makes it fun too. It, you know, I, I just learned um, what makes a Steven Spielberg movie mm. uh, engaging. Uh huh. And it's the way he directs it. And it's like he uses this, uh, it's called the L method. Yeah. So, and we talked about this yeah. where, you know, one scene he pans across and then the other scene he pans down. Right. And he's basically just panning across and down, uh-huh. across and down. And somehow that keeps you engaged. Uh, you know, other directors have different methods, but like that's his method. And then, you know, they showed examples on YouTube of mm. how that happened. And I was like, that's it? Yeah. That's all you have to do? Yeah. And when you, you know, you realize there's so many things that just seem like magic. Right. 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 That it, you go, once you figure it out, you're like, that's it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Whether it's uh, your relationship or sleep or even, I, you know, the biggest, uh, the biggest uh, hack to me recently was uh, sleeping. And, uh-huh. I, and I've talked about this in previous episodes and that. So many people talk about like they don't nap and they're afraid to nap because mm-hmm. when they wake up, they feel more tired mm. and they don't know that you can only you should only nap for either uh, 20 minutes yeah. or 90 minutes. Yeah. Or if you're going to do more than 90, then you have to go three hours. But it should only be in those increments because mm-hmm. uh, if you get it, a lot of people wake up from their naps in the middle of their REM cycle. Okay. And that's why they feel groggy. Yeah. Because you're in a deep sleep, then your alarm goes off. Okay. And, and so if you wake up uh, t- after, if you do a 20-minute nap, that's before you get into your deep REM. Mm, if mm. you do 90 minutes, you've been through a full REM cycle. Got you. So that's the key to taking okay. a nap and not waking up I'm all the king groggy. of naps. Yeah. I take them almost every day. Right. And most of the time, I set my alarm for 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I'll set it, I'll try to set it for 40 minutes, not knowing what you know about naps, but then I'll reset it for another 30 or 40 minutes and then get up after that, you know, so that's good to know. The, you mentioned you're losing your brother when you were younger. Yeah. How, how old were you? How old was he? What, what were the circumstances around that? I was five and he was three and he was born with a, what is called a hole in your heart. So I'm not sure where it was, but he always had purple lips. So it's something that's much easily fixed now, but at the time it wasn't. And he went to a, uh, I think the children's hospital in Annapolis. I was living in South Bend at the time, Indiana. And he went to Annapolis for a surgery of some sort and he died, right? So my mom and stepdad, or at the time, came home without him. And I was just like, you know, I'm five, so I don't completely understand what's happening, but my brother Terry's not here. Where's Terry? And they're like, well, he's not, he's not coming home, right? But I didn't understand until I got older why he died, because when I was younger, I didn't know he was sick. I just knew he had purple lips, mm-hmm. right? So... Again, on that same trip last year where I went to visit my dad, I visited my mom. And all this time, I have believed that I was unaffected by my brother dying at 
five. I was five, he was three. I never thought I had any, if someone were to ask me about it, I'd be like, I'm over it. Like, I never felt like I wasn't over it. Well, my mom's got a whole different story for me, right? So after five, you know, you start school. Well, I was kicked out of every elementary school I ever went to. I went to a new elementary school every single year, right? And I'm thinking, these people at the elementary schools all have problems. The teachers have problems, the principals have problems, like, I don't have an issue, it's their issue. And my poor mom, I have to give a shout out to my mom for dealing with me at that time, because she did, I didn't know, but she's explaining to me like, hey, you know, like you are acting out because you had lost your brother. So you were getting into fights and you know, all you were saying things and just getting into conflicts with teachers. Uh, like at the time they would spank students or paddle them. And they would paddle me, uh, paddle me or um, the nuns, I went to some private schools when I was younger and they would, they would whack me over the knuckles with big fat pencils and I'd like, you know, flex my knuckles really hard and break the pencils and you know kind of chuckle to myself about it but I never made the connection of here how is how I'm acting because I lost my brother you're grieving right my mom was like well you when I saw her last year she's like well you were grieving so you were acting out and she just just had to deal with she was like you were the worst kid but I had to deal with it she even got me a therapist you know African Americans are not that keen on therapists right but we're talking in the like late 70s early 80s my mom found me a local therapist and had me go there and you know talk to him i remember having conversations with this therapist i don't remember what they were about now but i remember like sitting and talking and not really understanding why i had to go but still getting kicked out of like every school I ever went to not until the eighth grade and i found football that i stopped getting kicked out of school you had a place to put the energy. I put it someplace. And maybe I was starting to heal a little at that time right. or just growing up, but I never knew that you know, there was some anger or some issue. So it, I didn't have the vocabulary to understand what was happening. People in my community didn't have the vocabulary you know, to talk to me. It was only the times I went outside of my community was, was there someone to try and help me but it wasn't really translating like when I went home and when I was with family, they didn't know how to help me. They didn't know what to do. They didn't really know where to send me outside of the attempts that my mom made. And her, you know, uh, her approach was mostly just being there for me and, you know, allowing me to be who I was at that time. But I'm 44, maybe 45 years old. And not only until last year did I realize Oh, that's why I went to a new elementary school every year? No clue. I just thought I had a lot of energy, you know? She's like, no, you had a lot going on, you know? You know, we always talk about the importance of exercise and movement um, on a daily basis, mm -hmm. right? And it's such a great way to uh, communicate uh, how you're feeling. Mm. Right. Or mm. to to manage the emotions, because sometimes if uh, we talk about, you know, like the emotions get wound up, whether you're going through it's anxiety or depression or anger or you're grieving or whatever it is, that's energy. Mm -hmm. uh, emotions are energy. Mm -hmm. So 
if you can't aren't able to physically express it, then it becomes destructive, right? Yeah. Whether it's uh, food, alcohol, drugs, mm-hmm. sex, mm-hmm. whatever that is. And so, you know, that's why, you know, you, you got into football and all of a sudden now it's kind and also, you know, it's not just the the exercise, right? Because me and you both, we, we both played college football at Ball State. Mm-hmm. It's also the community. Yeah. So, you know, you've lost your brother, but now you've gained, you know, 50, 60, 70 other. Yes. We're, we're yes. still, because, you know, we're in our 40s, but we're still close mm-hmm. with a lot of our buddies mm-hmm. that we played football with, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, so you get that community, you get the movement, uh, you get a coach who's kind of like, uh, for a lot of people from the the, the, the inner city, is like a, another father, right? Or right. a father, right? You know, yeah. a lot of guys. You know, I my father really wasn't around, and yeah. um, your father was uh, around like, fourteen. Around. Yeah, yeah. So uh, you you pick up a lot when you're you know pe- you know I feel like sports, especially football, is getting uh, dinged up a lot, but there's so many positives that um, uh, that have come from that. You know. Yeah, I think football saved me in a lot of ways you know just maybe maybe not specifically football but sports in general but football I mean I played soccer at the one of the private schools I went to for half a season before I got kicked out of that school but eighth grade football was the first like full time I had played a sport you know and I think the running and the jumping and the hitting and all of it was an outlet to you know this energy I had you know at that age and probably some of the frustrations I had that I didn't even understand so here I am playing football and um, I'm not terrorizing my community anymore <laughs> so my mom said that people would come to the house and knock on the door and say hey is your son okay and she was kind of confused like yeah he's fine like why do you ask and they're like well we haven't seen him in a while and she was like well when would you see him and she was like all the time he'd jump my fence and <laughs> eat everything in my garden like i would eat people's rhubarb or berries out of their garden like it i don't know in indiana at that time you you know stuff growing in the ground was like free for all i thought right right but i'm there, still kind of like that uh, i yeah. see somebody's tree hanging over the sidewalk yeah. I'm, I'm snatching stuff off the tree. right so they were like we haven't seen him and they thought something happened to me so they're coming over and my mom was like just kind of putting together she goes think he's playing football like he's at football practice maybe that's why you're not seeing them and i just didn't have the energy to terrorize the neighborhood anymore right right? i was doing that and coming home and sleeping like a rock every night you know you know it's funny because when i was a kid i was stealing grapes from where from grocery stores (laughs) like so there's there's a couple youtube videos i've put up uh I had a, a a camera, a hidden camera in my uh-huh. tie, uh-huh. and I go into uh, Ralph's and some other grocery stores, and uh, the, the the joke is to see how many grapes I can eat yeah. before somebody approaches me. Right. I finished an entire bag, <laughs> an entire bag, Michael. Oh, it's man. on YouTube. That's hilarious. And and when I say eating grapes until yeah. somebody, I'm talking about one grape at a time yeah and sharing grapes with other customers right. as i'm like hey you want a grape right there's one episode where uh i'm at i'm at food for less 
and I'm eating one grape at it. But I'm in a shirt and tie. Right. I don't, I'm clean. You know, right. I don't look like right, I'm right. stealing grapes. They're right. like, clearly this guy can, I look like I can afford to right. buy the grapes. Right, right. I'm eating one grape at a time. The, uh, one of the, the, the employees sees me mm-hmm. and looks at me, doesn't say anything. Though. Yeah. And then goes and gets the manager. Right. So now the manager and the employee are standing there right. looking at me. <laughs> right. But the, neither one say, <laughs> say anything. Hilarious. So then that manager gets another manager. Yeah. And this is all on on YouTube on the, in the video. Right. Uh, so now I have two managers and an employee standing there looking at me. Right. And the the per, I realized the person who told the employee initially was a secret uh, shopper oh, or whatever. Okay. He's the, he's walking. He's circling. Right. Right. He's right. just like, ain't y'all gonna do something about right, this guy? Right. Like, right. Nobody does anything. <laughs> I just stand there. I love I it. I finish the bag. Yeah. I pay for it at the very end. Right. Right. But um, do you know how much you weighed? Uh, well, I always weighed it before, oh, okay. and then I would I would get to right. uh, when I got to the cashier, I was like, this is what right, it was, right. and you know. But uh, but when I was a kid, I yeah. was stealing grapes just out of like I didn't need to steal grapes. There was right. plenty of food in the house. Right. I was just like it was just I was just bored. Right. You know. Yeah. And then some kid ratted me out. Right. Came to my window, Mrs. Flowers. Leo been stealing grapes. My mom beat me so bad. <laughs> she made me go pick out the belt. Yeah, old school. Tore me up. Yeah. And then I found that kid, and I beat him so bad. Yeah. And then I never stole grapes. They say shit that. blows downhill. D- I do not condone revenge, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. I was a kid. <laughs> I would never do that again. That's just how it was. <laughs> it's it's interesting to me how. The way you dress can get you away with oh certain God. things because sometimes I go in the bank after building a piece of furniture and I'm covered in sawdust, you know, my hands are dirty and I'm wearing a t-shirt with holes and they will make me wait forever to get my money. You know, I'm just like, really? I'll go home, I'll put on a sports coat, some slacks and some brown leather wingtips and go back to the bank and all of a sudden, I'm Mr. Graham, and I get served immediately, you know? So I'm like, okay, I've got to have a different costume for, you know, my interactions daily. I can't go meet with customers dressed better than them, right? and I can't go dress like a bum. But I have a costume, I call it my uh, woodworker uh, custom furniture builder costume. It's like a denim shirt, a pair of work boots I don't wear to work in. I just wear them to go and talk to people wow. because I, I imagine that's how they expect me to look. Right. So that's how I show up. And, you know, and to them, I seem probably seem very professional, but I just put these outfits on to, so I can Appearance live my life without restriction. Everything. Yeah. It's like just yeah. dress for the job. Yeah. Remember that time we went to that bar in Hermosa and the dude said our pants were sagging. Yes. And we had to go back. Yeah. We went back home. Uh-huh. Pants weren't sagging. Right, no. We were uh, we were standing in line. Yeah. Too, too baggy. Too baggy. Yeah. The guy was like, too baggy. Yeah. Um, and we lift our shirts up to show that they were around the waist. Mm-hmm. And he's like, oh, you just pulled them up. Mm-hmm. So we looked at each other because our friends were in there. Right. And we were like, man, is this dude really going to do this yeah. to us? So we went back home. Uh-huh. It was like 30 minutes changed our pants, mm-hmm. put on some tight uh-huh. church pants, right. came back. Yeah. Dude still didn't want to let us yeah. in, you but know, he let us in. You know, I went back and talked to that guy. You did? I, I did. 
I showed up one time. See, sometimes my um, costume is the people I'm with. If I show up at that bar with a bunch of white guys, I'm going to get in. It's not like, it's okay. So what would happen is I would show up and they would already be inside and he wouldn't want to let me in. So this time I showed up, my friends had just walked in. I could see them inside the door and I'm at the doorway and he's like, your pants are too baggy. And I said, bro, do you realize the only reason I own these pants is so I can get in this bar? They're the tightest pair of pants I have and I bought them so I could get in this bar. I wear them, I only wear them here so I can get in. And in that moment, he stopped and he looked me up and down. And he was just like, you're good. And he let me in and he never stopped me after that. And my friends were just right on the other side, couldn't get to them. You know, if I had waved, been able to wave at them and call them over, they would have just walked out and grabbed me and walked me in. It would have been right, no problem. Right. But I had to explain to him like, this is, this is. And, and then later on, I talked to him and he was like, we have a dress code here. And I go, you don't have a dress code at this bar. There's a guy in your bar wearing sandals and cut off khaki pants, right? They're like all torn at the bottom like he was, what's the Tom Hanks movie where he's on the island? Uh, Castaway. This guy looks like he's in the movie Castaway, right? But he's telling me there's a dress code. So finally he admits, he's like, okay, we don't have a dress code. We just like try to keep certain people out, you know, so they don't come and cause trouble. And he was like, if you show up with a neck tattoo, I don't care how you're dressed, you're never getting in here. And he was like, and a lot of people, I turn away thinking that they might be trouble. He goes, but I realize you're not that guy. You're doing what it takes to get in here. You're, you know, being really polite and calm when you talk to me. So he's like, you're good. And from then on, I would get in whenever he was at the door. If someone else was at the door, I might Start not get in. Start all over yeah, again. Yeah, I might not get in. But if I saw him, I'd try to hurry and get there before he walked away to take a break or something. And if I had to, I'd pay whoever, you know, to help me get in a little faster. You know, you know and what was beautiful about that is uh, you were willing to have a conversation yeah. with them versus y'all never, you know, the, the right. argument right. or uh, accusations right. yeah. and just saying, uh, you know, especially after what happened between us, you could have the second time been like, man, last time, you right, know, right. but you were like, like I'm going to stay calm. No, I'm going to have a conversation. Yeah. Work around. How yeah. do I work around this yeah. guy? This guy is my dyslexia. Right. How do I work yeah. around this guy? Yeah. Right. Being angry wasn't going to help. Uh, and, you know, it's it's I feel like it's really like I feel like African-Americans are really uh, comfortable with anger and conflict and confrontation. You know, we are. We are often a culture that um, doesn't shy away from or run from a conflict. You know, like if my sister doesn't like something I'm doing, she's not quiet about it. You know, she is very adamant, like, I love you and I'm here to support you. But if there is something she doesn't like, she will be like, you're wrong. You know, and and I, I appreciate her because I can she can be very honest with me. You know, and if she's saying something like that, I have this moment of, okay, I probably need to listen to her, right? But if it's not your family, you know, our community can be very confrontational, you know, like very confrontational. So it's like, I think it's like my, my default to be confrontational. And I have to like resist that and go, what is going to help me achieve my goal? Right. 
sometimes the confrontation will get me there. And sometimes it's the wrong tool to use, you know. But reading um, Verbal Judo mm -hmm. and Never Split the Difference are, you know, two books, you know, describing how to, you know, move through conflict, you know. And I think it was uh, Never Split the Difference. No, it was Verbal Judo. He talked about why African-Americans were better at it. Because they grow up better at verbal judo. Yeah, because they grow up with conflict and you know, you know, talking about each other in a funny way, like playing the Joneses. Right, right, the dozens, right, the dozens. We was cracking on each yeah, other. Yeah, just right. your mama jokes. Yeah. So we develop thick skin, and you need thick skin to practice verbal judo. You know, you've got to like, instead of reacting to a situation, you've got to think, what do I want out of this situation? And how can I get there? And if it's, you know, the uh, reaction, you know, the gut reaction is not the way to get there sometimes. So you just got to, you know, swallow what you want to do and do what's necessary to achieve your goals. You know, like we talked about earlier, if it feels good, it's no good. Right. So and that is a, a practice you have to learn early on, I think, if you're an African-American male to be successful. I mean, that that's like across the board, right? Yeah, it's yeah. like uh, emotional intelligence and yeah. knowing how to communicate and uh, uh, really and knowing how to negotiate yeah. for what you want. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people get a divorce or break up mm -hmm. or uh, get in trouble in school mm -hmm. because they don't know really how to communicate their, or even people who are struggling with their weight. Mm -hmm. Um, or some addiction, it's like they have these needs and wants mm -hmm. that they don't know how to communicate in a way to get them met. Right. And so they just go, they, they, so they, they spiral into this realm of hopelessness mm -hmm. uh, versus really finding a way to, to verbally say what it is they want. Or what, I, even for myself, I know I struggle with it um, when I'm like, oh, you know, you just like, you, you, you swallow it yeah. sometimes. You don't say what you... And then, but it, it, it manifests itself in some other way, whether you go, go work out or, you know, you go eat or whatever it is. It's, um, but I think, I think most people struggle with, uh, communication, mm -hmm. uh, because even that guy at the, at the bar is like, you know, what, you know, there, there's ways to say it of like, Hey, this is what it is, right. you know, but only, but you had to be the guy right. to kind of initiate right. that, to get him to the place to where he can then feel comfortable, uh, communicating with you that way. What, uh, go ahead. Look at what yeah. I was thinking about like what, what you're saying here and how, uh, the conversation I often have with myself because of partially because I love like Eckhart Tolle and partially because I love. I love the book, um, uh, Never right. Split the Difference. Right. right. And he's, you know, he, he's explaining in that book, like, you can't start a negotiation until you get the other party to say, that's right. So most of the reason I bought uh, Never Split the Difference in Verbal Judo one of them you suggested, the other one, but the reason I started reading them is because of fights with my fiance. And I wanted to be better at fighting and not louder or 
bigger or stronger or more aggressive. I wanted to be better at ending the conflict. And I figure like, if it's part of my culture to um, kind of move towards conflict, I, I needed to find a way to be better at resolving it. And sometimes the conflict is internal. Like what triggered this thought is you saying like people dealing with addiction. And I'll ask myself because, you know, you have to get to a, a that's right, which means like I can clearly explain why you're mad. I'm so good at explaining why you're mad that you say that's right, right? So as I'm like craving sugar or I want to eat something, the, the inner like conversation is like, why do I want? I, I'll say, well, I'm not hungry. And the reason I want this is because I just love sugar, you know? And I think the other part of the conversation is my body saying, that's right, you know? And I can go, well, I can wait to eat this at least until I'm hungry. I just ate and now I'm just downing sugar because I love sugar or, or whatever. And I can either prolong it or put it away. Sometimes I'll buy it and not open it and just have it around or I'll, I'll buy it, I'll have one piece and I'll throw the rest away, you know, mm -hmm. instead of eating a whole candy bar or something like that. But that that's right conversation is what I have when I'm talking to a client, when I'm uh, fighting with my girlfriend, and I even have it with myself is I got to get to that. That's right. It was she's mad at me. My first re reaction would be like, oh, you're just mad because and explain to her why she's mad. And maybe be totally off base but for me to get to the point of understanding why she's mad I've got to like really listen to what she's saying I've really got to figure out what it is she is actually mad about and when I do I'm like oh you're mad because not in a reactive kind of way gut reaction with anger in a real understanding of oh this is what's actually upsetting you this piece of the conversation and she's like that's it yeah that's right and even I feel better like I like I did with freestyle rapping and uh, uh, the Marie Kondo book it was like it. yeah like oh I get it and then when I realize what she's actually mad about I realize most of the time that's not even something I care about. That thing I could easily get rid of or stop doing, you know, because it didn't really even matter to me. And the whole time, there's this whole conflict built around this mustard seed, you know, of misunderstanding. And then finally you get to it and you're like, this isn't even that big of a deal. You know, you know, I'm sorry, you know, and then you can move forward, you know. It, you know, it, and that's why they say it takes two, right? Because usually the person who's initiating the argument uh, uh, they're usually heightened already, mm -hmm. a bit more emotional. Mm -hmm. um, they haven't really thought through or processed their own emotions or why they feel the way they do. And so hopefully you're with someone who can help you peel back the layers mm -hmm. and get mm -hmm. to, mm -hmm. this is what is really going on. And you and you feel it in yeah. the moment. You, yeah. you both feel it where you go. I, I, was, uh, I was out with this girl yesterday and... and uh, she was really upset about something. She wasn't upset with me, but uh, she was going on and on. And I was like, uh, 
you were you were overwhelmed. She was like oh, overwhelmed. Like you could see like yeah. she was like that's ex- like I didn't know what the word was. Right, right. And then when I was able to label it, yeah, like you could see the lights go off. Yeah. And and what was fascinating is she was no longer heightened. Like you could see right. her relax. Right, right. Because now she was like, oh, I feel heard. I feel validated. Yeah. And uh, now she can move past right. it. But you know, uh, it took me, you know, because me and you read the same type of books. Mm-hmm. It took that kind of like really listening mm-hmm. to what mm-hmm. she was saying mm-hmm. before. Uh, and sometimes, <laughs> tell me if you have this, like you know what to say, yeah. but you're like, we're about to argue about this. <laughs> like you just, <laughs> just like a like the nine-year-old uh, I, I resist those moments <laughs> yeah. right now. I resist them. I, I Sometimes when I said it feels good, <laughs> if it feels good to say, it's no good to say, right? Because right? Right. there's moments where I'm like, oh man, I've got a sharp sword. <laughs> And I could whip it out right now and I could say this thing and like win, you know, like I just won. But I'm like, oh, that winning is going to be me losing in the long run. So I've got to like sheave that sword and just like take a deep breath and just listen a little bit longer and try to be like in that moment. I've definitely got to be the bigger man because. I think the downside of reading books about negotiating is you tend to learn what to say to make other people feel better, but they don't know how to make you feel better because they haven't had the same education or training at this point. You know, they don't know about the that's right statement. They don't know about how to in this conflict in a healthy way yet. They don't haven't had that. So sometimes I feel like I'm doing all the work here and she's reaping all the benefits, you know, but then in the end I say, well, what I want is peace. And, you know, the, the saying of, if you want peace, you'll have peace, you know, you'll, you'll do what it takes to be peaceful. So I just do what it takes and go, okay, this is going to get me what I want in the end. But, you know, and I know a lot of people feel like that, where especially you see couples who go to therapy. Yeah. And uh, or or just one person's going to therapy and they feel like I'm doing all the emotional work. here, Right. right. And you're not going. I'm going. Blah, blah, blah. Right. And and what I've realized is that what really happens is as you are um, teaching or as you're making her feel better. Right. Uh She's subconsciously picking up on how to, what you're doing. Right. You see what I'm saying? Right, right. And what I realize is that the trajectory is that she'll start to use those tactics on other people. Ah, uh, okay. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm, she'll mm-hmm. start to use it at work. She'll start to use it other places. Mm-hmm. You won't even know about it, mm-hmm. but she's picking it up. It's mm-hmm. modeling, right? Yeah, yeah. And because she's like, ah, oh, I felt better. And, and, and somehow she'll be like, oh, I, she'll get it and then find herself doing it naturally right and then but you know you're the last person yeah who it comes back to right 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 right. yeah and so you're right it's like it's the long game yeah of i i when i worked with kids um you know i would you know talk to them in that way and labeling their emotions Mm -hmm. validating how they felt Mm -hmm. uh the positive reinforcement and uh it was it was great between us and then you would start to see the kids do it with other kids. Uh, it would take a long time. Right. Some kids months, yeah. some kids years, yeah. depending on 
uh, you know, IQ uh-huh. and how much uh-huh. what their backstory is, things like that. Mm-hmm. But it eventually, and then it gets to a place, and I've seen this, where you don't have to do it at all. Right. Because you're both speaking more of that language uh-huh, now uh-huh. The, the your language has evolved yeah so you're you'll find yourself not having to have those type of conversations right, where right. you're talking her down right. as much yeah but like i said it you really have to be like three years from now right three years from now yeah. is where you're gonna yeah. see if you can stick to it but every yeah. time the, the sad part is every time you you pull out the sword for the win yeah it, it it sets you back like right, three six right, months. Right, you know what I'm right, saying? Yeah. So that's I, why I, I could, keep yeah. putting it away. <laughs> and I, I noticed she's. Uh, I actually gave her a verbal judo and she yeah. read it. Yeah. And I noticed she's using the techniques at work. Yeah. You know she's exactly often using it, yep. them at work. Yep. You know. And uh, I'm sitting here sometimes like I'm not getting any of these <laughs> techniques. You know. But I think like if I you know keep it up and remain calm and let her have her journey. Yes. She's coming around to, you know, apologizing and, you know, talking to me when she's calm Mm -hmm. and it's way better. If I wait until she's calm, sometimes that's a day. Sometimes it's three. Right. But at whenever that point where she's calm, she's always like, I'm sorry. You know, so I know it's coming. I just sometimes want it right now. But I tell you what, and here's the other trick. And this is, I, this is the most important part is, especially for the listeners out there with kids and, uh, you know, you're doing the validating, you're, you're mirroring the language, all those things, is when she does it, you have to thank her for doing yeah. it. Yeah. That's so big. Right. It'd be like, you know what? I really appreciate you validating how I felt. Right, I right. really appreciate you taking time to label my emotions. Yeah. Because that speeds it up, yeah, right? We yeah, talked yeah. about... Yeah. Pulling out the sword, going for the win, right. setting you back right. a few months. Right. But the positive reinforcement, yeah. being like, you know what, last night I really felt hurt. Yeah. And like I, I know like you were sleepy and you're tired and you yeah. didn't really want to have that yeah. conversation. Yeah. But that meant a lot to me. Yeah. Dude, that that speeds up. That's 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 too that's like going to a tutor yeah. and getting a workbook and right, you know, right. you know, all the right. all the extras right there. When that happens with us, uh the thing I find myself saying to her is like, you know, I know that was really hard for you and I appreciate you like making it happen anyway. So I mean I just gotta give a big thanks to the uh author <laughs> of um Verbal Judo, that was an excellent book for diffusing fights with anyone ever and uh, never split the difference. You know, if I ever see those guys, I'm going to have to buy them a beer. Oh, man, (laughs) I've been trying to go to their seminars or never split the difference. Uh Seminars are like $2,000 for like a day or two days. Wow, it must be awesome. It must be awesome. So uh, I'm going to try to go because... That that because just to be in that circle of people yeah. who uh, are talking like that and articulating, yeah. and, um, you just uh, it's a skill that you always need. Whether you're buying a car, mm-hmm. you're talking to kids, mm-hmm. uh, the airport, ta- like everybody wants to feel heard. Most yeah. people don't because everybody's on their cell phones. Mm-hmm. Your kids want to feel heard. Mm-hmm. It's you know especially if they're struggling uh, with uh, any type of mood disorder. As parents in relationship, like we all want that, and uh, you'll find yourself 
moving up the chain mm-hmm. at your job. Like, mm-hmm. it's not even just about relate. It's like even your career. Like, yeah. you'll shoot to the top yeah. faster. Yeah. Knowing how to diffuse situations. People yeah. want to be around you more, you know? All, I mean, the, my list of must-read at the top of it is Never Split the Difference, Verbal Judo, uh, The New Earth by Eckhart Tolle, yeah. and um, Truth by Neil Strauss. Oh man, I have all those. It's so yeah, powerful. I know, but those of all of them change me in ways that no amount of money could justify. You know, what I mean? like it was all of them were a huge difference in my life. You yeah. know, so yeah, I mean, there's many more because I think the upside to reading slower than everyone else is my uh, ability to uh, take in information through audio. So I don't know, like blind people actually hear and taste better, but if I'm dyslexic, my ability to, you know, listen to books is through because I I can't listen to them twice because I often remember them still, and I consume like, you know, in the middle of the summer when I'm working a lot, I'll listen to 17 books, you know, 15, 16, 17 books in a month, but on average I'll do. You know, uh, some books are eight hours or 16 hours, so it might take me a day or two at the most. So I I might, you know, crush maybe two a week sometimes. Sometimes Uh, three a week. You listen to at twice the speed? I listen to books at like one half the speed usually. Actually, you told me you did that, and I don't because I actually like the story. Like, there are some books that are so data heavy that I just want the information, especially if they're financial and the narrator's kind of dry. But I don't, I, I force myself to do it. But I think I will do that on some books that I want. I, I don't need the extra stuff. I don't really want the info. I might increase the speed. But a lot of the books I listen to are also uh, fiction. Fiction. And I like the actor who is narrating or, you know, I like the story being told. So I kind of get immersed in it, you know. But, you know, I do just as many books about business or about um, um, uh, spirituality or something like that, too. So, so like I said, we are in your workshop right now. And you've always, you know... Uh, done things with your hands from the bikes to the cars. Yeah. Uh, there was a time where you were making uh, leather wallets. Yeah. And then you, now you're in, in, in well, I don't know what, actually, I don't know specifically what you're doing now. It seems like you're doing, you're getting uh, con- more contracted work for specific things. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the, where you are now st- seems to stem from you were making these wooden glass wine tables. Yeah. These they're beautiful. If mm-hmm. you go to Michael Graham Designs mm-hmm. on Instagram, right, uh, you can see them there. Yeah, along or with his other work. My website, michaelgramdesigns.com. Go to michaelgramdesigns.com mm-hmm. to see these. Uh, and so, but what's fascinating about that story is because uh, it's a story of value, and sometimes we don't know our own value. Yeah. How much did you sell those first tables for? And then how much did you find out they were being sold for? It was funny. The first ones I sold for like $400. And I thought that was ridiculous, you know? Now, like you thought it was you thought it was expensive. I thought it, it was too expensive. Right, $400. Right? These beautiful wooden And they were handmade. selling as fast as I could make them, right? And I was just like, man, I can't believe people are buying these, right? So then someone says to me, you should try selling these on Etsy. And I was just like, what's Etsy? I'm like, oh, it's a website. You know, people sell their stuff they make. 
So I'm like, all right, I'll put one on Etsy. And I said to myself, I'm going to put it for so expensive that no one is ever going to buy it, you know? So I put it up there for like a thousand, which to me was mind blowing. I'm like a thousand dollars for a coffee table. That's crazy. Three days it was gone. And I was like, oh, okay. Maybe I can build furniture for a living. Cause I was trying to build motorcycles at the time, but I never wanted to sell a motorcycle I built. Right. So I started doing furniture and three days it was gone and it, they just kept selling like that. So finally I give one to my buddy, uh, Todd white. He's the, um, artist that created, um, SpongeBob and he's my like unofficial mentor. Cause he's a person I, I bounce all my questions and ideas off of, but I gave one to him. I gave a couple to him to sell in his art gallery in Austin, Texas. And I don't know if I didn't have the confidence or the belief that people would spend more money on these tables, but I give one to Todd. And he was like, oh, I, I sold your table. I'm going to send you $1,000. I'll split the sale with you, 60-40. And I was like, oh, right. I was like, what? what did you, if you sold it for 1000 if you're giving me $1,000, what are you selling the tables for? He was like, oh, I don't sell them for anything less than two grand. And I'm thinking, who buys a table, a coffee table, handmade by a Neanderthal, for $2,000. And Todd's like, well, if you come into an art gallery looking for furniture, you obviously have money to spend. So therefore, you're going to spend $2,000. And it, it kind of made those tables so expensive that I don't sell as many of them anymore. I sell all kinds of stuff. You know, I pretty much am still, I still am into making things out of leather. I still am into making things out of metal. I, I do a lot of welding for projects. And I'm into making furniture, but I try to remain open to what I will do because it will give me so many experiences, new experiences than just pigeonholing myself into one type of thing. I work with some contractors who think I'm only a welder. They have no idea I make furniture. They're like, hey, here's my welder. They call me to weld all their welding jobs for them. And then I have interior designers who you know, call me for my woodworking, you know, have me make custom furniture. And then I've got, you know, a couple of like marketing uh, agencies and uh, some um, interior design firms who will call me to kind of mix it all together. Here's this piece we're trying to develop. It's really unique. Can you make it for us? And my, my, my answer to can I make it is always yes, even though at the time I have no idea if I can make it. But I figure I'll figure it out. Like, you know, working with my dad as a kid, you know, I'll figure it out. I'll watch YouTube. I'll ask some old guys some questions and eventually I'll get to the place where it's right, you know, and I'll just keep working on it until it's right. You know what I mean? The, um, so now what are you selling them for? Uh, I think the wooden glass wine tables on average. That's a great question because I think on my website, they're maybe, I know they're more than a thousand dollars, but I don't think they're quite $2,000, but I can't remember because I haven't been to my own website in at least a year. That's hilarious. It's time for me to update it probably because I'm not solely making furniture for wine anymore. I'm doing all sorts of things, Mm -hmm. but I look at my website. I need to find a book about how to organize your website, right? Because I look at my website and I'm like, I'm doing so many different things. My website is not encompassing who I am. You know, I do things for trade shows. I do things for um, uh, outdoor events like concerts. 
you know, like you I, made me some uh, uh, cutting boards, yeah, and I put them up on Instagram and Facebook. And I have a buddy who's a chef. He's a pretty high end. He's like, I want one of those cutting yeah. boards. He's like, I'm dead serious. Yeah. I don't know if he reached out to you. I, it's I linked funny. you. Maybe three people from your Instagram sent me private messages on my Instagram right. you know, about, and one of them was just saying, I love your work. And I was just like, oh, I appreciate you taking the time to say that. You could have kept it to yourself or just click like. Yeah. Yeah. But he just sent me a message. I think it was a a woman. Maybe she just sent me a message saying, I just love your work. This is awesome. You know, that sort of thing. So I was like, oh, cool. That's really awesome to hear. You know, that kind of validates I'm on the right path of making things for other people. You know, if you look around my studio, you realize I don't own any furniture. You know, (laughs) I I don't have a coffee table. We had to kind of make a coffee table today. Uh, My media center is a leftover piece of log from another piece of furniture I made for someone and my sofa I think I found in the alley you know so I make things that are functional for me in the moment Mm -hmm. and I spend my time making things for other people it's like what I enjoy so I don't need you know like I say a shoemaker's kids go shoeless and a a doctor's kids go under medicated you know so a furniture maker doesn't own any furniture Uh, let's talk about your last name yeah this is and, and this is uh to me, this is powerful because uh, we, you know, identity. Who, who, you know, a lot of people. Who am I? What am I about? And uh, you did twenty three and me. No, I did uh, ancestry. Ancestry dot yeah. yeah. And uh, you found out that you what? What's the percentage? Uh, I was like maybe a little more than twenty percent European. European. Yeah. And so I want to I want to backtrack a little bit. Because, uh, you know, early in a podcast, you're like, you know, our, our, we have a culture and we're talking about black culture. Right. 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 Of aggression. Right. And so I, I can see some listeners being like, you know, he's just double downing on the stereotype. Right. Can you can you clarify what you mean by that? Because we both know a lot. of You know, you look at Martin Luther King and the, and the whole peace movement and things like that. Like, can you clarify that stance? Because, uh, and I think that's important because we're going to talk about your last name and why you right. want to change that. Right. I I feel like the piece of, like about aggression and conflict. You know, it's it's hard. Like, I had this college professor when I was doing my master's uh, in education. He he said that the worst part of his job was explaining to people why they're racist. Right. So, you know, and this was a educator educating people about multicultural education, how to teach people from all over. Right. So when I am explaining sometimes to people about, you know, my culture being, you know, a little bit more aggressive or a little bit more um, comfortable with conflict, it's sometimes hard for them to believe because if you are you if you're on the outside looking in you you can't really get a full understanding you know i kind of grew up bicultural because i went to private schools with all white kids you know and i lived in a mostly white you know uh community from time to time so i've been inside that culture but very few people that i'm explaining myself to have been inside of mine so they they often do miss what i'm saying but um you know in my culture, and I'm going to say that this is like, you know, a blanket statement, you know, for every black person ever. But, 
you know, there's a lot of violence happening in, you know, in our culture. I mean, I'm, I'm not a believer in phrases like black on black crime because crime happens wherever you, wherever you live. You know, if you're white, there's crime there too. But in my culture, like you've been in situations where backing down is worse than standing up because that sense of fear or weakness. You don't want to be a punk. Well, and not be, before even being a punk is that that sense of weakness can be like blood in the water. It's like telling the aggressor now that I can do what I want to this person because they're afraid, right? So like when I was a kid, my mom would tell me, whoever is bothering you, she saw me running home from school and she said, why were you running home from school? And I was like, well, these kids were trying to beat me up or whatever. And she was like, well, here's what I want you to do. The next time they bother you, I want you to pick up anything and hit the most aggressive, the biggest, strongest kid, and then the rest of them will leave you alone. And then, sure enough, the next day, they're after me again. And I, I took, my, took my mama's advice, and her last piece of that advice was, I don't want to see you running home from school again. So I... I, I don't know what I grabbed, but I just basically clocked the biggest, most aggressive kid over the head, and the rest of them just melted away. And I, and I have kind of lived that way, you know, ever since, like maybe not in a physical way, but in a verbal way to be able to, like playing chess, you can either, you know, back down, you can protect, or you can attack. And knowing when to use those pieces, I think is, you know, is a real challenge. But often if you're just, if you grew up in a, in a ghetto or close to one, like the, the line between things not being violent and being violent is paper thin sometimes. It's paper thin. It could be as small as a look. It could be as small as the wrong phrase, the wrong colors. And there's a, there's a fight, you know? And you've got to realize, like, how to control this anger or this aggression that you're experiencing with, you know, males and testosterone and in a community where people aren't afraid to fight or argue or yell. And sometimes that just being loud is misinterpreted as aggression when really it's just kind of part of our culture to be loud and to sing and to dance. It's like when I hear Middle Eastern people talk, I have a oh, friend who's from, right. I, I think they're fighting all right. the time. Oh, she's yeah. talking to her mom. I think she's um she's from Iran. Yeah. And I'll hear her talk to her mom. And when they're finished talking, I always say, is she mad at you? And she's like, no. And I'm like, oh, it, just the way it sounds to us, to an American, it sounds aggressive, right? And some of what's happening with African-Americans is about that misinterpretation of what's happening with our body language or with our... Because uh, we're, we're more physically expressive. Yeah. You know, when I'm, you know, I'm about to go, today's Easter Sunday, and I'm going to go hang out with my family yeah. after this. Okay. And my family is, they're from Belize. Yeah. They're, they're loud. Yeah. They're turned up all the time. All the time, yeah. And and not in this, like, but there's just like, just having a great 
time. Right, right. They're sharing stories. Yeah. They're talking trash. As soon as you yeah. walk through the door, right. they're looking you up and down. They got right. something to say about your pants, right. your shirt. Right. If you bring a girl, why you bring a girl? If you don't bring a girl, why didn't you bring a girl? Right, right. They're everything. You right. know, ate all the food. Yeah. Not enough food. Yeah. You know, take this. And I would walk into that situation yeah. and like not miss a beat. It would be like it's my family. How right. Because you're so used to that, right? right? And when you're on the outside of that culture, you're looking in, you're kind of like, what's happening happening? here? You know, I have people who have just been like dumbfounded by the conversation and, you know, the the body language and just the topics of what's happening. And the free, because we talk about everything. Everything, Nothing is off. Dude, I I was dating a girl from... uh, uh, Houston, Texas. Yeah. Uh, I, you remember her from college. I'm not going to say her name. Yeah. I was going to say her name, but yeah. that's ridiculous. Right. Anyway, I remember I went, uh, and she's from like a, a upper class uh, black neighborhood uh, in, in Houston. And uh, I go home for Thanksgiving to be with her family. It was so quiet. Yeah. It was so proper. Yeah. I was going nuts <laughs> so uncomfortable. i could not it was like you know nobody sat down till the father sat down right and the father would ask you questions so like what's your five-year plan yeah, yeah. and i was like are you kidding me right. is you, this know, real? you know everything is passed to the right and yeah. all like this is the dessert for it yeah. and you know my family like you better get it before it's gone right, you know? right. like it's every man for yeah. himself you know I came up with a new term for that. For what? What's that? Well, I use it for all kinds of stuff. I call it the basic bitch of whatever that thing is, right? So when I meet people who are really um, pretentious and they're Mm. they're, like pretending to follow the rules of that culture or some other culture that's not theirs, I call it, that's like the basic bitch of that. You know what I mean? Like, because the, the, the joke about the basic bitch is, she doesn't realize she says the exact same thing of all the girls just like her. Like, they love the same movies. They wear the same clothes. You know, just like, oh, you're so basic. It's like talking to a robot who is so influenced by, like, um, commercials and social media that everything out of her mouth has been scripted. And she has no idea it's been scripted, you know? Right, right, so sometimes right. I have, you know, like, basic bitches of, like, uh, clients. They come by and they're like, oh, I want something so unique. And I'm like, right, never heard that before. And then they just go about describing the exact same piece of furniture that a lot of other people have bought. You know what I mean? So I'm like... Oh, they don't realize that they're copycats of whatever their social influence is. Absolutely. So, absolutely. you know, when I, in that situation where I've been in with, uh, I've gone to Thanksgiving dinners with uh, white families and, you know, Asian families. And I've, you know, some of them are just like, they're pretending to do the hallmark version of what a Thanksgiving looks like. Right. And I'm like, oh, this is like the basic bitch of Thanksgiving right. dinner. Right. It's right. not right. really like this. Yeah. That's, you know, it's like. You saw it in movies. You saw, yeah. you know, uh, you know, whatever sitcom. Right. For, and you seat, saw it in, you know, in greeting cards yeah, and pictures. Yeah, and that's what they're replicating. And I'm like, oh, this is not real. You know, it's so fake. You know, you know what? and I'm glad you brought that point up because I think there's a, there's a lot of people out there living these inauthentic lives yeah. where they're trying to fit into. uh what society mm-hmm. has said like mm-hmm. this is this is like you know you know it's like those parents would have like my kids on the honor roll it's like yeah but are they really learning anything right you know I, I've, I've had classes where i've gotten a's mm-hmm. and didn't learn a thing right you know and then i had you classes learn how where to I get got, a's i learned how to get a's right 
Then I had classes where I had gotten C's, and yeah. I, I was like, there was so much growth, and right. I was so proud of that right. C. Right. And I was like, hey, uh, you know, I had took a drafting class in high school, Mr. Torres, and I was, you know, I, I, I wasn't good at drafting. I didn't know what drafting was in my mm-hmm. first drafting class, mm-hmm. but he had a way of assigning you work that took the entire, like, you knew as soon as you wa- walked in, you had to get right to work. And you right. had to have everything together. You couldn't be fumbling for stuff. Right. You sat down, you got to work. It took the entire class. And, uh, I always felt so proud, even if I, I didn't get it quite finished. Yeah, I was I learned something every single class, and right. I just bring that up because there's so many. I read too many reports of st- uh, students and kids, or and even adults, but more about the kids who are high achieving, uh-huh. and then they complete suicide. Right, and it's just because they they're achieving at things that. They think other people that other people uh, value, right? And they don't value that, right? They value something else, right? But they're trying to fit into this metric of of this this is this cultural standard of of what uh, a good kid is or what a, you know. It's just, just trying to make their parents proud. I met this guy who lived in Japan as a high school student, and he told me that during their standardized tests they would display all the scores on this huge screen. Wow. And the people at the bottom of the test would commit suicide. And I was just blown away that there was so much pressure from the whole community, you know? And he was like, oh man, you worked really hard to make sure you were as high on that list as you could. And, you know, I realized that when people are acting out the roles, you know, like some of us are, like I say, I wear a costume to, you know, to transition from one situation to the next because I realize it's a, it's a play, right? Right, right. And a, a lot of people don't realize it's a play. And I think what helped me understand that it was a play was, uh, another book I got to add to my top list is um, uh, The Four Agreements. Mm. Because there was a part or a chapter that talked about you've never made a decision in your life, like where you were born, what religion you are, like what you wear in your community, what you eat, all that's been made for you. And until you realize you've never made an original decision or had an original thought in your life, you can't start making original decisions and thoughts. And I, I, and I can see the depression behind me when I was in Indiana was I had this great job, which everyone told me, no one quit that job because people, the janitors retired from that, uh, from that pharmaceutical company millionaires because their stock options over time. Wow. And at the time, they had some patents for some really good drugs. No one quit. And I was quitting. I was telling everyone, I'm quitting this place, right? But the reason I stayed for so long is because my community told me this is a great job. Right. So you stay and you're in a you you can afford a house. So I bought a house and I did all these things that I was being told were the right next steps to make. But none of them were right for me. And being strong enough to break free and like do what I wanted is what I think really helped me. And looking back on after reading like the four agreements and the new earth and realizing like taking care of yourself sounds selfish, but you've got to take care of you first because you can't 
you can't help anyone else if you don't have that, you know, love of life or whatever to give. So I made sure I was happy first. I made sure I was doing the things that I enjoy and it makes it a lot easier for me to spread joy through my work or sharing, you know, like making cutting boards for you. Like I would like I would talk about making stuff for people and be like, ah, I got to make all this furniture and it's like so much work and it's so hard. But deep down inside, I'm like, I would do this shit for free. You know, like I'm getting paid for it. But even my gripe about it is not real because I have created this for myself and I have to take responsibility that good or bad, I have created these situations that I'm in. And sometimes it's hard to be honest and realize that you've made things harder for yourself. But you know, there's a couple Instagram memes right now where there's a a guy with a boot on his head and it's like before, you know, spirituality or realization, Mm -hmm. there's a boot on his head and then the picture pans out and it's like after, and it realizes his hand is in the boot. Oh, right. Right. You know, keeping himself down. Yeah. He's keeping himself down. And that is a big part of it is like whatever your community is telling you is right for you is not necessarily right for you. And sometimes you got to let just branch out and do your own thing and and be the black sheep and, you know, let people hate on you because of it, you know, and just do what makes you happy, what makes you feel better, what makes you feel fulfilled. And that that's what I try to do with my work now. And and so let's get to your your last name. Yeah, Graham. Graham. And and you want to change that now go. after uh, chop on the chopping block. Man, you got on Ancestry.com. Found out you're twenty percent European. So I get on Ancestry, and initially it tells me like I'm, you know, a little less than eighty uh, percent African American from like the Congo, Mali, and uh, another part I can't remember right now. But then, you know, there's all these little pieces, like a tiny, tiny bit Armenian, uh, a little bit Filipino, a little bit um, uh, Samoan, and this big chunk of European. And one of the things that helped me realize is, like, how do African Americans get their names? And I'm not sure. But what I think is they get their names from the people who own them, right? That's why there's so many... Smiths and Williams and, you know, these traditional names for African-Americans have come from gigantic plantations, you know, owned by a guy named Smith. Right. So if I find out my last name came from some other source, I would want to keep it. But how can I, you know, have this separation from my past and my future when I'm holding on to, you know, this cultural pain that, you know, African-Americans have. I mean, it's, it's, it's part of the reason I think there is a little bit more anger in our communities because, to be honest about it, African-Americans are angry about slavery. They are angry about the way they're treated by, you know, uh, the people in power, sometimes white people, whoever, you know. A lot. It's not fair to be like, oh, I'm not mad about it because the truth is, yeah, you are. And all this holding it in doesn't help it come out in a in a in a, in a helpful way. So, what I real what I realized is my last name was given to my 
great grandparents, great great grandparents. It was given to them when they were freed, right? Mm -hmm. So I feel like I don't need to carry on. Like I am not so identified with Michael Graham that I need to carry that name. You know, it's like a rose by any other name would smell as sweet, right? And I'm from the Midwest, you know, South Bend, Indiana, where probably most of the people are named Michael because it means he who is like God, right? So it's a very religious place. And, you know, I get like Michael is the uh, most common name in the United States. It's the second most common name in the world, right? And, you know, I went to my dentist one time. What's the first? I think it's Muhammad. Oh, wow. That makes so sense. I think it's something like that. It's Muslim. So I, uh, I, I'm, I'm checking out the dentist. I go to pay, and he was like, and the, the secretary says, what's your name? I says, Michael Graham. She says, oh, that doesn't even narrow it. Like, there's so many Michael Grahams. And I'm like, well, I thought Michael Graham was original, right? No, it's not. So she says, um, what's your middle, middle initial? I say, it's Michael A. Graham. She's like, damn, that still doesn't help me. There's still like five more people, you know? And I'm like, oh, okay. And she was like, what else you got? And I was like, date of birth? And she was like, okay, there we go. Well, it turns out nine and a half months after New Year's, there's a lot of birthdays. September 28th is nine and a half months after New Year's. There's a lot of people. I know at least three people. No, I know at least 10 people who were born on the same day. I probably know 20 people who were born within a day or two, right? It's, it's a huge day, right? So I'm like, okay, there's all these Michael Grams. There's all these Michael A. Grams that they can't even figure out who's who. And, the, you know, you're, you grow up like, I'm special, right? And you realize, like, if you are special, you believe that. It's not because of your name. It doesn't make or break you in whatever, you know. So I just decided, you know, I'm starting a new family and... I'm a different person than I've been my whole life. And I don't need to carry the name Graham. Because, and part of the reason is I'm not sure how I got it. You know, so. You, you know what's, what's strong about that is uh, the. Because there is a weight, like you said, that comes with your last name. It, mm -hmm. it does, it, mean, it means something. Mm -hmm. and, and of course, the meaning changes over time, like mm -hmm. words have mm -hmm. changed over time. Um, but why I think that's really powerful is when, you know, people walking around with whether they're anxious or depressed or angry or whatever, that your emotions just aren't yours, mm -hmm. right? Like mm -hmm. We went back, there's no original thought, there's no original emotions. Mm -hmm. You're also carrying the emotions of your people, right. of your culture, yeah. of your history, mm -hmm. of where you've grown up. You're carrying that karma. Mm -hmm. You know, Eckhart Tolle talked about or not Eckhart Tolle, uh, Dr. Alan Watts. Mm -hmm. He said, when people talk about self-help, he goes, what is the self that you're talking about? Mm -hmm. Because who you are is made up of not just who you are physically now and from the day you were born or the day you're conceived, but you, the self, is uh, a combination or a culmination of your community mm. of your history yeah. of your evolution right how far back do you want to go when yeah. we're talking about Some truth there yeah so when he's talking when he talked about karma he goes your karma is wrapped up in the karma 
of the the place that you're in. Mm-hmm. So like you're in this house. Mm-hmm. This house has karma. Like some stuff has went down here yeah. before you moved in. Right, right. The neighborhood has karma. Yes. So and then if you're you get wrapped up in their karma. So this idea that if something bad happens to you is because you did something to right, attract it to right, you. Right, right. It's like n- no, you were in the neighborhood where things like that happened, happened and you yeah. got wrapped up in the neighborhood's yeah. karma. Right. You know? Right. And so when you talk about that name, Graham, yeah, that name has karma right. attached to right. it. You know, there are people who probably, uh, you know, didn't want to accept that last name. <laughs> yeah, you, you know what I'm sp- talking of, right? Yeah, and yep. uh, and eventually, were you know, some were convinced otherwise, and some died to be like, I'm, I'm not gonna use that, and that's not gonna right. be my last name. Right, right. So and other people probably fought. To be free to have it. Absolutely. Right? So, so yeah. I, I bring it up because I, I really want to encourage people to explore their history and not just their history of their family, mm-hmm. but of their, like, I, you know, I'm part, my grandfather, my great grandfather is Scottish. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm, I'm excited to explore the, now the Scottish History, yeah, and the people, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure he was my great grandfather by uh, by choice, uh, passive means. <laughs> but um, I'm still, it's still like I'm like I think I'm accepting like it's a part of me, yeah. And I'm like I want to know. It's like with the dyslexia, all right. What part of it is me where I go? Oh, I recognize that in me, and right, I see that right. in me. And then how do I want to incorporate that or, or work around it? You know, yeah. Um, so I, 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 so have you picked out another, it's funny that you, you know, you're picking out a name for yourself and for your, you know, your, how, wait, how many months is, uh, is your wife? She's in her, she's in her last trimester. So however, however many months that is, I don't know. Right. But, um, I'm, I'm trying to decide on a name for him, Mm -hmm. my, my little boy. And I've, which I like Xander. We talked about. Yeah, you did. Actually, she, she likes that name too. Um, and I'm looking at meanings first, okay. Right, not absolutely. names, not just the way they sound, mm-hmm. but meanings first. You know um, why? Why meanings first? You because uh, I don't. I don't know if you in at Ball State did you take the uh, class? Um, um, oh crap! I can't remember the name of it anymore. But there is this class where you had to learn the roots of names. It was a general studies class you know Mm. uh, the name will come to me eventually but in that class I realized all names had meanings because I had never put thought to it before you know people are just John people are just Bill people are just Mike right but all of those names in the Midwest all came out of the Bible right and be like Smith blacksmith right. right those names meant something and we started going over the um names of products, which I never thought about the name of cars. And at the time I drove a Toyota Supra and Supra meant above and beyond. And I was just like, oh, that makes sense. It's supposed to be like a really good fast sports car at the time. Right. And now every name of every vehicle I look at, I'm like, oh, there's a giant SUV called like the Sequoia or something like that because what, it's the biggest tree on the planet, right? You know what I mean? So. These designers brought about, you know, chose these names for a reason. They're not frivolous. They weren't by accident. So as I'm looking at names, I'm realizing that names are often picked by the meaning you're trying to convey. And, you know, like 
with my daughter, I was trying to convey uh, change. So I picked a name that meant, you know, change. So uh, with my son, I'm trying to figure out what meaning I want to choose and then choose a name kind of around that meeting. And for myself, my, my new last name is going to be around something that is more meaningful for my life as of right now. You know, not what my name meant to whoever had it, you know, originally. And my, my parents, my family were never blacksmiths, you know, so none of them are named Smith, but I want it to be meaningful to me in this time in my life. And maybe my son will change his last name at some point too because he finds a meaning that is more meaningful to him. And that's okay because it, you know, my name has nothing to do with me or my legacy, but I don't also want to carry something from the past and not understand, you know, its meaning or how it got there. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Now, I thank you uh, for, for doing a podcast today. Uh, I really hope the listeners got a lot of value out of this. I mean, we, we covered so many different topics from, uh, you know, uh, you know, communication and uh, verbal judo yeah. to, uh, you know, really taking the time to explore the meaning of your name, the meaning of your life. Uh, but most importantly, I feel like, you know, the other thing was, uh, you know, uh, really identifying the source of uh, either your emotions or the source of your um, uh, your disabilities and then figuring out how to work around it. And, mm -hmm. you know, but that takes work. It takes time and it, it, it takes you can't do it alone. That's mm -hmm. that's what we, mm -hmm. we also talked about. And and you also have to have uh, patience in that if you're evolving faster than the people in your mm -hmm, life. Mm -hmm. You have to give them time to grow and catch up mm -hmm. because they also have a life that they're leading and things that they're trying to get done. And we have to give them room to grow and realize that if we're able to grow, that means the people in our lives are able to grow. And uh, we, we just have to uh, give them space for that. So uh, thank I you. I want to add something. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, you are talking about finding the source and... Um Sometimes you've got to find the source of your unhappiness. And if you can't eliminate it, eliminate it immediately with no, uh, what's the word for being kind? Like just ruthless. With ruthlessness, because you shouldn't spend a single day unhappy if you have any power over it. I try not to do anything that makes me unhappy, anything. And sometimes I get offered a lot of money to do projects, but they're working with people that just drive me nuts, right? And I go, no amount of money is worth my sanity and my happiness. So I just say no. And I tighten my belt a little tighter that month and, you know, eliminate some of the things that I do for fun and, you know, work a little harder. But um, the source of my unhappiness is, is, uh, something that I'm relentlessly trying to eliminate. You, you know what I, I, I what was great about that is we were talking about, because I'm looking at getting another car. My lease is up yeah. uh, in August. And I was like, you know, because I listened to Total Money Makeover. Yeah. And he's like, you know, get you a $2,000 car, yeah. save the money and blah, blah, blah. 
And I was like, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll save money if I get a $2,000 car versus leasing. Because yeah. I'm looking at the money I'm paying. I'm like, right, this is right. crazy. Yeah. And then I go, I could think about it like that. Or I could be like, I need to find a way to make, generate more revenue or right. increase my income. Yeah. Um, so that I can continue to lease. Because I, I like having a, a new car because I don't want to, I spent so much of my life right. worrying about the car I was in yeah. breaking down. Yeah. That having a car that I I knew that every time I got in was yeah. gonna do what I asked it to do yeah. and give me from A to B, it, it freed up a lot of mental space. When you're in a car right. where you're like, is the engine gonna drop out? Right, Am I right. is it trans like what's that noise? Yeah. That takes up so much mental bandwidth. Yeah. And and I'm like, I don't know. If I want to go back to that. That's how I felt about (laughs) having a driver's license for the first time because I was always so worried about getting pulled over by the cops. And I couldn't have a driver's license in Indiana because that always pulled me over for being black while driving and took it away from me. And then I came to California and no one really cared what race you were when you drive a car. So I had a driver's license for the first time and there was this huge weight that just fell off my shoulders. I had no idea I was carrying. All of a sudden I was like, I feel so much less stress now that I have a driver's license and I know no one's coming for it, you know, (laughs) but I like $2,000 cars because I like the puzzle when they break that I can play with it and figure it out. I'll be under there all day and all night, you know, and I realize that makes me happy. And even if I'm griping about it, I still enjoy it. Right. Right. And that's not for everyone. Some people don't want to feel that, you know, and for me, I'm like, Oh, a broken car. I'm like, I find friends and they're like, oh, my car's not running right. I'm like, really? Bring it over, you know? So I can I can solve this puzzle, you know? So I get it. It's not everybody's thing. And there's other ways for people to save money. I will never buy a new car. I <laughs> always buy them with like one foot in the grave and other on a banana peel, you know? And then I just bring them back. And once they're all done, I sell them, you yeah. know? <laughs> they gotta go. It's useless to me now. Yeah. <laughs> Mike, man, this has been dope. Where can they find you? What's your website again and your Instagram? Uh, my website is michaelgramdesigns.com, but I'm almost never there, so don't spend a ton of time there. <laughs> but I'm on Instagram daily, and I'm on Facebook as Michael Graham Designs. Yeah, you got your two. Uh, you have two dogs, right? What are the dogs? Oh, my, I have two bull, English bulldogs. They are uh, Dr. Watson and Princess Fiona, and they've got their own Instagram, and that's called um, Who is Dr. Watson? A word? Yeah. I had no idea. Yeah, he's got his. <laughs> some people don't care about me as much as they care about the dogs, so I had to make a space for them to go to see the dogs daily. There it is, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. Make creating space. That's yeah. what it's about. All yeah. right, thank you guys for tuning in. Please share, download, like. I I, I love the comments. They keep coming in. Um, and uh, take care of yourself. It's not selfish. Um, it's, it's, it's when you take care of you, you can take care of everybody else. So talk to you soon. Peace.